0: 1 Peter 5, 5-7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Amen. This is God's Word. may be seated. So as we know, Peter's been encouraging these saints as they persevere through trial and will continue to encounter stress of various kinds. Uh, He now is, in chapter 5, sort of concluding his letter with a few exhortations, which I think will serve to guard against some possible dangers which may arise in the face of distress and persecution. And so this week we kind of see, and last week really, we see he addresses problems which may arise from within the church under stress and persecution. And next week we'll see he turns our attention to uh, the attack that comes from the outside of the church. Um, distress can disrupt the function of societies, of groups of people. Groups or organizations can run along fine and when they encounter obstacles or trials, they get stressed out and the sinews which held them together can be stressed to their breaking point. In a society of people who are under these types of pressure, healthy authority structures can, can flip into disorder and chaotic anarchy seemingly overnight. Uh, Disunity can penetrate even to to the nuclear family. Uh, Fear and distrust that result from this type of persecution and distress are difficult emotions to overcome. But as Christians, when those seasons of distress are are placed upon us, the church has a duty to, to keep an even keel. And those seasons call for order. They call for unity and and this laser beam focus on God and His promises. Uh, And I think not only do they call for those things, but by the grace of God, if we look at the history of the church, it bears witness to us that difficult times more often than not bear the fruit of a proper response from the true church. So today we're going to see how Peter addresses this question of How does the church respond under the pressure of trial and persecution and the internal threats of disorder, disunity, and distracted fear? And the answer I'll give you ahead of time is humility and hope. So we'll begin here with this threat of disorder in the church which we actually began last week, Peter is concerned that the church to whom he is writing maintain order. And so he addresses the elders directly, as we saw last week, and now he turns to what I believe is he's speaking to the laity in a call for submission to that eldership. Um, So, verse 5, Likewise you who are younger be subject to elders, to the elders. So naturally, my mind immediately went to the question, if he's addressing elders before, now now he's addressing youngers, what does that mean? I mean I'm a preacher who maintains the uh, baby face, clean-shaven look, and not really by choice. <laughs> I'm the peach-fuzz preacher. So you can see why this question would be particularly valuable to me. Uh, so I dug around a little bit, and generally, I think everybody was in agreement. Peter was not talking primarily about older men, but about the office called elder in verse 1. That He was specifically talking about the office of elder in verse 1. And he was very clear in describing those specific duties that go with that office. Now, Calvin believed that he completely switches in three verses, that he was talking about the office before, and now he's talking about older men, um, which is interesting. Uh, I think it's possible that he did that, but I kind of doubt it. It just seems like a strange, sudden shift. Um, the best synthesis of the information that I've found is that elders are those men who hold the office and are generally those men who are more mature and thus naturally usually older. And the younger are those who are, or are not yet, elders. Uh, he may be particularly focusing on the young because it is the young who have a particular difficulty with submission, Oftentimes. However, the word younger here could also be translated newer, uh, just as legitimately. So he, it may have the implication that he is drawing a distinction between the older in faith and the newer in faith. Uh, but the real point, whatever interpretation you take of that, and the real purpose of Peter's exhortation, both to the elders in one through four and the younger here in verse five, is that order would be maintained in the church. And specifically, order in the face of difficulty and distress. Elders, he says, shepherd the flock with oversight and with willingness and eagerness and leadership. And you who are younger or perhaps newer, he says, submit to that Lord or leadership, which also takes a patience and a humility. Every part of the body needs to play its role to run well. No part is intrinsically superior or inferior, but all have varied gifts and duties that God has given, roles within which we are to serve God and to serve each other. Uh, Hebrews 13 is a fascinating parallel to me to to this verse. Uh, He says in verse 7, the author of Hebrews, Remember your leaders, (coughs) those who spoke to you, the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Uh, then verse 10, just 10, ver- or 10 verses later in verse 17, as if to kind of strengthen it, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So these are strong words, and, and strong words that make us uncomfortable. As we talked about, we, we don't like authority. You know, we talked about in Sunday school, we are individuals and we don't like authority. I'd really rather not imitate the way of life and faith of, of some other guy. I, I think I can work it out by myself. Me and my Bible, we have it covered, right? Or this whole submission thing, you know, what, what about equality? Submission, obedience, that those words reek of the unfair stratification and inequality. Or what about this this whole idea, these people keep watch over my soul? No one is responsible for my soul but, but me, right? The condition of my soul is my personal business. That is kind of the attitude and the atmosphere that we live in today. Uh, but the Bible does not lay out the order of the church in the way that our society thinks it should be ordered or even the way we naturally think it should be laid out. It's countercultural and even counternatural, but it's God's command as found in Hebrews 13 and in verse 5 of our text. Um, some are submit to submit to others, even within the church. And younger should submit to the elder and the laity, or however you take that phrase, should be in submission to the leadership. Order is essential in the church in all times, but especially in days of distress, as, as Peter's audience is going through. I think the ease of the church that we've experienced in, in America over the last couple hundred years or whatever has created this, this buffet-style, consumer's market, tailor-made church smorgasbord which makes living out these commands very difficult, whether it be on the submissive side or the leadership side. You know, rather than a group of faithful, biblical, qualified elders leading, teaching, guiding the church, church leadership is driven by the wants and desires of the people. The tail is wagging the dog. If leadership promotes a teaching I don't like, or makes a move I don't agree with, I'll just pick up my family and go elsewhere. The proper biblical order of things is largely missing in American church today. Peter pleads with the elders to do a faithful job leading the flock and those who are not elders to submit to their leadership. And we seem to have, contrary to that, the sheep leading the shepherds where they wish to go. So forgive my soapbox moment there, but I do think that that is important because the church that will thrive through seasons of distress or through seasons of relative ease is the church that is in order. Peter cares about the health of the church through persecution and trial, and so his first practical exhortations here guard against disorder and promote the healthy ordering of the church. The second challenge the church in distress needs to overcome is disunity. He says in 5b, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he turns our attention from particular groups, from elders and youngers, to the whole, to all of you. He says, the whole church, which to me speaks to the entirety of the body of Christ, as does the previous call to order. It's not just within the local body, but the whole body of Christ. Because Peter, after all, writes to not an individual congregation, but to a region. He says in verse 1, I believe to the exiles, to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It's as if he was saying, to the elect exiles of Rifle, Newcastle, Glenwood, Carbondale, or, or really their region. So it's more like, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, Wyoming. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For some reason, I've been thinking about a lot this week the fragmentation of the church across, you know, congregations and denominations. And I've been really <gasps> grieved by the fact that all the Christians in the valley can't worship together in unity. It truly is sad to me. If it's not sad to us, we don't have a right attitude about it. Now, of course, the response of, of popular evangelicalism is to strip away everything but the, the very core of the faith and even at times to be bendy and flexible about that. But that solution leaves us with an insufficient unifying substance Unity has to congeal around uh, something, some substance. So I think the appropriate response to the fragmentation of the church, if, if we really do believe in the Catholicity of the church, is to maintain a robust, full, whole Bible faith, and to plead with the world and fellow Christians alike, we believe that the Bible says this, that this is the way forward, will you join us? That seems to be Paul's model of ministry. He says to the elders in Acts 20, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So if I read that correctly, anything short of proclamation of the full counsel of God leaves the elders' hands open to have bloodstains on them. We have to preach the whole counsel of God. So all of this brings us back around to Peter's command because he says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And I think many today would say to me, Zach, what you just said about holding tightly to fullness of doctrine is manifestly prideful. In fact, I think many would accuse Reformed folks at large of being arrogant, prideful, and standoffish. And if I may, with my own sore toes, step on your toes there's truth to every stereotype. I think in the Reformed tradition, in many ways, we do have a problem with pride. We have our nice, tight system of doctrine and we simply cannot learn anything or be fellowship in fellowship with people of another tradition. And that is a problem I think we need to be on our guard against as we are called to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. I'm convinced that the Reformed Church has the responsibility to be both a strong voice and a loving voice in the broader Christian community. And in so doing, I think we have a wonderful opportunity to help unify what is a divided church. So, I don't know, you may be asking yourself at this point, what does all this talk about unity have to do with humility? (laughs) Isn't Peter talking about humility? Humility. And in brief, I think Peter's purpose in bringing this up is to unify the saints. He says, all of you, which is a statement that draws the whole church in the region into a single unified congregation of the Lord. And humility and unity go hand in hand together in the Bible. Uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 5, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to, is a wonderful example of, of this relationship between unity and humility. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this passage gives us this great deal of insight to the relationship between humility and genuine unity. True humility places other people above ourselves. It counts others more important, seeks to fulfill the needs of others before ourselves, and is in direct opposition to to rivalry and self-promotion. True humility is also a unity of mind. He says, have this mind, the mind of Christ, It's tied directly to being of the same mind, of the same love, being in full accord. And all of this, I think, does violence to the prevailing notion that humility and agnosticism are one and the same thing. To be truly humble is to set aside our own wants and our own needs and our own thinking to take up the wants and needs of others and the thinking of Christ. Not to put away the the mind altogether, but to put on the mind of Christ. That's the type of humility, he says, we're to clothe ourselves with, or literally to, to tie on. It is to conform to our persons, to move with us and to go with us where we go. It's to be the thing that people look at when they see us. People who care deeply for each other and think like each other and love like each other because we are all being conformed to one image of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Now Peter founds this exhortation he uh, produces it on the basis of Proverbs 30 or Proverbs 334 which says or he says for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble that's the reason for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble so God is in the court of humble people and he is against prideful people and I think when we read this we may be inclined to think he's saying be humble and thereby obtain God's favor. But I think in the context of 1 Peter and in the context of Proverbs, the distinction between the humble and the proud is much more of a dividing line between the people of God and the people of the world. In 1 Peter, over and over again, we see this line drawn between the covenant people of God and the way that we are, who are born again are supposed to act, and the world, and the way they act. As an example, he says in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, those who are in Christ are no longer to live for human passions, the way Gentiles do, but we are to live for the will of God. So there's this dividing line. And in Proverbs, the context here is the instruction of the Son and the Father, pleading with His Son, do not abandon the way of the righteous, but but remain in the way of the righteous. Do not forsake it for the way of the wicked. So then Proverbs three thirty-three through 35 here a little bit of the context. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but He blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners He is scornful, but to the humble He gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. You can see this back and forth, this one side versus the other side. This is what we have here in First Peter. We have in Christ been made God's people. We are not of the house of the wicked, but we are in the dwelling of the righteous. We are not of the scorners, but of the humble. In Christ, we are of the wise, not of the fools. And so the call is, as it has been through First Peter, become who you are. Live as humble people, because God made you to be humble people in Christ. I love Mary's uh, Magnificat. It's a beautiful confession here of this idea of God's care for the humble people. Uh, I'm going to read that for you. It's from Luke one forty-six through 46-55. She says, And Mary, sa- Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. and remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So Mary gets that that distinction between the covenant people of God, the people of humble estate that he rises up, and those who are cast off. And these Christians to whom Peter writes are, by the world's standards, lowly. But that's of little confident consequence, and in fact it's most often the the lowly that God raises up. Christians are those who with Christ endure suffering and malignment and who will be raised up with Him in glory. So then, it would be inconsistent for pride to prevail in the house of the Lord, but for the church to be self-seeking, self-serving, and self-sufficient. God blesses the humble, but we can be confident in this that our hope as we live the humble life of Christians of bearing crosses that he will in the proper time raise us up so I think the threat of disunity in the church especially the church facing distress is largely done away with as she closes herself clothes herself with humility Now Peter turns next to this humble hope that we have as we live righteous, fearful lives of, um, in the care of the Heavenly Father. Here's the third threat to the church in distress, and that is that we will, we will become distracted or disrupted by fear of, by fear of persecution. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So I think humility is valued. It's a virtue that pretty much everybody values, Christian or otherwise. But true Christian humility finds its source in submission to God. The verb translated here, humble yourselves, is actually, it's a passive verb, so I think it would be better translated. Be humbled, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. The sense is similar, but rather than humbling ourselves when we see the mighty hand of God, it is with the mighty hand of God upon us that being humbled is something that happens to us. Uh, Commentator Karen Jobs, she does a great job summarizing the meaning of this. She says, Peter has already explained persecution comes to faithful Christians and is not apart from God's will. They should recognize Recognize painful trials as normal parts of Christian life. And these experiences are God's purifying fire of judgment. So it's not outside of God's control, it's under the mighty hand of God. So she says, to be humbled implies a decision to remain faithful to Christ even knowing that humiliation will result. So in brief, to be humbled under the mighty hand of God is to live in complete and utter submission to His will, even if it means a life lived in a low estate, and it also means a life lived in God's timing, because we know we know as the people of God, there will be blessing for us. God gives grace to the humble. That's the promise we just read, but. That transition from humiliation to glorification only occurs in God's perfect timing. Getting married is an interesting exercise in learning how different people operate on different time schedules. Uh, Kelly and I have always tended to operate on the same or a similar time schedule, but uh, what you don't realize before you get married is the degree to which you marry the other person's family. (laughs) And it took me a few years to learn that Kelly's family does not see the way, you know, see time the way that I see time. And it's not that it's objectively wrong or that my way is objectively right. It's just different and it takes time. It's difficult when our expectations and the actual timing events don't unfold in unison. And it's similar with God's timing. His concept of timing scarcely ever is in line with my concept of time. Of course, his Timing is objectively better than mine. His timing is perfect because it, it unfolds according to his plans and his character. So we've seen time and time again in this letter, the season of exaltation is at the arrival of Christ. But we have this hope, this humility under the mighty hand of God. It may be painful. Temporary trials will grieve our hearts but it will result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So I know I've quoted the verse a million times during this series, but it's like the theme verse of 1 Peter, I think. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. I saw one of the pastors in Jan's letter reference that verse as he is dealing with persecution. So I think the danger... Peter is guarding against here is that the church will become consumed with the fear as they face difficulty and be distracted from God and his promises. So we often operate out of fear instead of out of the promises of God. We, We all too easily can fear men who will destroy the body rather than fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. What the church needs, especially in times of trial, is that that laser beam focus on God and a sure faith that He will come through as He's promised. It's that humble submission to the providence of God in hope of glory that is a sure antidote to a life lived in fear. To know that God will exalt us at the proper time frees us to, to do what Peter calls us to, to give reason for the hope that is within us. It gives us a reason not to join that flood of debauchery. It gives us the strength to hold up under malignment. And it gives us the confidence not to panic and to turn on our brothers and sisters in self-preservation. I have this image in my head. It's not a very clear image, but it's been in my head. It's something like a, sh- a ship. And it's going through the water, and on, in the distance there's this foreboding enemy ship coming closer. Under the pressure and the fear, the crew could begin to to doubt the captain's ability to get them out of the situation. They they could easily turn on each other and form factions with all different opinions about what should be done next. And and therefore, by simply putting just a little pressure on the vessel, the enemy ship has caused the self-destruction of the ship without even firing a single shot. On the other hand, if the crew is confident, if they share this common assurance that the captain does know what he's doing, even if we don't always understand what he's up to, this this confidence that he will get them safely through the situation, they will be able to perform their orders with confidence in this unity and strength. That's something like the image that I've had in my head with this passage. It, It all hinges upon the confidence of knowing who God is, what he's capable of, and what he's promised to do. And I think that is the essence of humility and hopeful submission. Now, God is not this kind of grizzled, battle-hardened ship captain. You know, he doesn't call us to just merely trust and then grin and bear the trials as they come. He is also a heavenly Father to whom we can bring our cares and our fears. First Peter 5.7 says, uh, casting all our anxieties on Him because He cares for us. Charles Spurgeon had a great little story illustration about this. He says, I heard of a man who was walking along a, a high road with a pack on his back. He was growing weary and therefore glad when a gentleman came along in a carriage and asked him to take a seat with him. The gentleman noticed that he kept his pack strapped to his shoulders, and so he said, Why do you not put your pack down? Why, sir, said the traveler, I did not venture to impose. It was very kind of you to take me up, and I could not expect you to carry my pack as well. Why, said his friend, Do you not see that whether your pack is on your back or off your back, I have to carry it? My hearer, so it is with your trouble, whether you worry or do not worry. It is the Lord who must care for you. And so, brothers and sisters, as those redeemed by the blood of Christ, we will share in Christ's sufferings. But we have this confident hope of the glory that we will get at His return and that God will do what He has promised. And so we, with humility, follow in that structure the order that He's laid out for us. And we can stand unified, humbly, clothed in humility toward one another, and confident in a, in a captain who will bring us through the trial, exalting us at the proper time. And it's with that confidence that we humbly lay our burdens on the back of He who already carries them for us. Amen. Amen.